0: Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part two continued of Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To by Dr. David Sinclair. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to please leave a review and I'll go ahead and leave my Instagram in the episode description if you wanna leave me a comment or if you have any book suggestions. So we're gonna begin part two, continued with the discussion of senescent cells. So if you were to take human cells out of the body and put them in a Petri dish, we'll see that these cells are only able to divide about 40 to 60 times until their telomeres become critically short. So our telomeres are these end caps to our DNA that protect, that essentially protect them from being degraded. And the point at which our cells stop dividing is called a Hayflick limit. So there was this man named Leonard Hayflick who discovered that our cells only are able to divide a certain amount of times before they end up just kind of sitting there. And these cells that just sit there are called senescent cells. And he, David Sinclair suspects that senescent cells in certain cells like nerve or muscle cells, the reason that they don't divide much or at all is because of the result of this epigenetic noise that I've been talking about for these past couple podcasts. And the, that causes these cells to lose their identity and eventually shut down. Now, I, I just I just said that senescent cells just sit there but that's actually not true. We've come to realize that unfortunately our senescent cells are creating massive amounts of inflammation and causing damage to other cells in our body. So these senescent cells are often referred to as zombie cells as well, because they should be dead, but they kind of refuse to die. And it's clear that aging and senescent cells has a correlation. And one of the reason this is one of the reasons this is suspected is because Again, these senescent cells, they'll be releasing these cytokines that cause inflammation and end up attracting immune cells called the macrophages that end up attacking our tissues. And we know that chronic inflammation is one of the leading causes of aging, and it can cause a lot of other diseases like MS, IBD, cirrhosis, and inflammation is also driving, is a driving force for heart disease, diabetes, dementia, so all these signs of old age are somehow linked to inflammation. And this correlation is so strong that scientists, they often refer to this process as inflammaging. So if you listen to Mark Hyman, he uses this word a lot the combination of inflammation and aging, inflammaging, because they're so closely linked. Now you're probably wondering, why doesn't our body just kill off these zombie cells? And this is a question that George Williams and Judith campus I were 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 questioning back then in the nineteen fifties. So they proposed that we evolve senescence as a rather clever trick to prevent cancer when we're in our thirties and forties. Uh, but if senescent cells were evolved to prevent cancer, then why would it, why would it eventually promote cancer in adjacent tissue in adjacent tissue? Why is it causing so much of this inflammation? And this is where the, the idea of antagonistic pleiotropy comes into play. So antagonistic pleiotropy is this idea that a survival mechanism that is good for us when we are young is kept through evolution because this far outweighs any problems it might cause when we get older. So this this natural selection is very callous, but it ends up working. So again, antagonistic pleiotropy some survival mechanism that may be good for us when we're young may not be good for us and be a problem when we get old. So remember, just like a, f- a, s- a few centuries ago, we were not living that long. Like life expectancy of 50 and beyond was not a reality for a lot of our evolutionary history. You know, we ended up dying from the most common things like a, a, a simple flu. And luckily, we have been able to advance our age, and we've also developed a class of pharmaceuticals called senolytics, which may be able to fight off these zombie cells. And these small molecules are designed specifically to kill these senescent cells by inducing a death program that should have happened in the first place. Now, there's this man from the Mayo Clinic, his name is James Kirkland, and he decided to do a a run on a few molecules, one of them, carcetin, and another one, uh, dasatinib. These two drugs were known senolytics, meaning these are the ones that are actually getting rid of these senescent cells. And carcetin, uh, on a side note, is found in things like capers, kale, and red onions. And this this dasatinib molecule has been used to treat chemotherapy uh, patients. And we saw that once these senescent cells were eliminated in lab mice, it extended their lifespan by 36%. And if you're wondering another molecule that can actually help with this these senescent cells is rapamycin, which I mentioned in the last podcast. And again, this is the longevity molecule and it's what's known as a senomorphic molecule. So it doesn't kill off these senescent cells, but it prevents them from releasing any inflammatory molecules which is also very good for us because we know inflammation is, is causing a lot of havoc in our body. So we need to find ways our immune system can help kill off these senescent cells just like cancer cells. And we've seen that uh, senescent cells can actually evade the immune system similar to the way that cancer cells do. So that's something two scientists, Campisi and Serrano, Kind of be- believe that these senescent cells, kind of like cancer, they remain invisible to the immune system by waving small proteins on their on their on their cell surface that says there's nothing here, there's no problem here. So this is how like cancer and and other things pro- proliferate is our immune system misses it and they end up just rapidly proliferating without our immune system doing anything about it so these two researchers are suggesting that this is how senescent cells are kind of doing its job they're evading the our immune system so we're going to be moving forward with get with the reprogram passage and the solution to aging could be this cellular reprogramming that he's talking about and remember remember the dna uh blueprint in our dvd our the analogy of the dvd we're going to come back to this again so the DNA blueprint, after all, is always there, even when we are old. This is something that's pretty well known. So how can we make the cell reread the blueprint? And he goes again to this DVD analogy. So there are two ways to play an old scratch DVD with fidelity. You could either buy a better DVD player, one with more powerful lasers that could reveal the data under the scratches, or you could polish the disk to expose the information again. So these are our two options, buy a better DVD player or get a polish remover to remove the scratches. And getting a better DVD player, again, is not unheard of. Th- like this first approach is not unheard of. Uh, we've actually done this. So if you've heard of this man called Ian Wilmot, in 1996, he replaced the chromosomes of a sheep's egg with those from an utter cell. And the result was Dolly, who was the first cloned animal so this is not unheard of of us, you know, re- kind of getting this new DVD player. And the implications of this experiment, which you can research on your own, is very profound. And it shows us that the aging can actually be reset. So the scratches on the DVD can be removed and the original information can be recovered. And again, we're going to be moving forward a little, a little farther and talk about this man named Claude Shannon. And he proposed the information loss is due to something called an increase in entropy or the uncertainty of resolving a message so essentially there's three components going on to his mathematical theory of communication which one of them is we need a source of information which is again our egg and a sperm from our parents secondly we need a transmitter which is our epigenome that helps transmit information through space and time the third thing we need is the receiver, which is our future body, so this is what Claude Shannon was proposing that we need to to reverse this aging, and then David Sinclair adds on three more things that need that we need to help restore this signal uh, that was you know messed up by this noise. So the three other things we need, David Sinclair states, is one, an observer who records the original data, two, the original correction data, and three, a correction device to restore the original signal. So this is where we jump into this idea of a correction device. David Sinclair believes that we have found this biological correcting device, and we can all give thanks to a Japanese stem cell researcher by the name of Shinya Yamanaka. So in 2006, this man, Yamanaka, discovered this, these four genes, and I'm going to name these genes. So first one is OCT4, two, second one is KLF4, third one is SOX2, and the last one is CMYC. So what Yamanaka realized is that if you gave these four genes into a cell, you could induce an adult cell to become a, plur, a, pluripotent, a pluripotent stem cell, or iPSC. And pluripotent stem cells are these immature cells that basically all our other cells come from these immature cells when, when, they're, when they're being created. So these four genes, again, are transcription factors that control other genes in our DNA. So transcription factors, they'll sit on our DNA and they'll help with gene transcription. And tr- transcription, for those of you who don't know, is the process by which we, we make RNA from DNA. So to explain a little bit more, the central dogma of, of biology is the, is the idea that DNA goes to RNA goes to proteins, which is the, the function of our, of our lives. So these four transcription factors are helping with the process of converting the DNA into our RNA. And this discovery was huge and in, in 2012, he he got this no, nobel prize in physiology or medicine and when when what he identified is that we're able to res- reset this switch and we've been seeing this and um, david sinclair puts that i predict and my students are now showing in the lab that we can use these and other switches to not just reset our cells in the petri dish but reset an entire body's epigenetic landscape so cells that have eventually lost their identity during aging can actually be led back to their true selves this is the DNA polish we've been looking for so we found a polish to our scratch DVD and it is these four Yamanaka factors these four transcription factors that are helping us return to our our younger cells, our younger cells and our younger cells actually and this is something David Sinclair is kind of hypothesizing so at, let's say at the age of 30 uh, we can get these maybe injections of of a engineered virus that that has these four transcription factors and we could even take a tablet to kind of turn it turn the switch on and off so this is something he's kind of imagining that what we're going to be doing in the future is injecting ourselves with a virus that carries these genes that help return our cells back to our younger cells and two biologists serrano and belmont they put this to the test so in 2016 when belmont triggered these Yamanaka factors for just two days a week through a lifespan of prematurely aged mice the mice remained young compared to the untreated siblings and lived 40 percent longer so he's shown that the skin and kidneys of regular old mice heal more quickly, quickly as well so we li- literally put this to the test and are showing that once we inject these yamanaka factors into these mice they lived 40% longer compared to their siblings now unfortunately these yamanaka treatments they were they sometimes they became they were too toxic if they accidentally gave too much and what happened was these cells actually went so far back in the lineage that they end up de- developing this thing called a teratoma so a teratoma is this tumor uh, that we get um, that some people get and it's this m- massive tumor that is made up of all three of our different cell lines so all our cells come from three different cell lines and eventually uh, what happened was he in- he injected too much of this Yamanaka-, Yamanaka factors and you develop this teratoma so that's something we obviously need to work on or be cautious of if we're ever going to do something like this now what happened a little later in 2016 was there was a graduate student in David Sinclair's lab, his name is Young Cheng Lu, who came up to David Sinclair one day and what he suggested was that we should leave out one of those transcription factors that was likely causing these teratomas. And he said, let me remove C-MIC." So remember C-MIC was one of the four transcription factors. He says, let's remove C-MIC and see what happens so he delivered this mice this viral package to the mice this time with only those three other yamanaka factors and no tumors arose so we're seeing some progress here by removing that one transcription factor and instead of waiting for another year to see if the mice um, mice in this experiment live longer he suggested that we should use the the mice's optic nerve as a way to test reversal and rejuvenation so th- this part is very interesting. So Yu Cheng, what he did was he collaborated with other workers and he squeezed the optic nerve a few millimeters from the back of the eye with tweezers and he caused almost all the nerve cells and axons to die and go backward to the, to the brain. He's essentially cutting this mysis optic nerve. And we wanted to see what happened after he injected this Yamanaka factors and instead of these cells dying what he saw was like unbelievable so David Sinclair writes instead of dead cells we saw a network of long healthy spindly tentacles that was making its way to connect up with the brain it was the greatest example of nerve generation in history and Yucheng was only getting started so this man essentially Re- regenerated nerves, an optic nerve in the mice that he had cut with tweezers. So he states, David Sinclair states, as I write this, we have restored vision in regular old mice. So this is pretty unbelievable. Uh, we're making great progress and who knows some, sometime in the future in our lifetime, we could see something like this done to us. So this is where we kind of talk about the ethical issues. There's a lot of unanswered questions that we need to think about. For example, can we deliver the combination to all our cells? Will it eventually cause cancer in us? Should we keep the genes on or turn, off, turn them off to let the cells rest? Will this work in some tissues better than others? Can it, give, can, we, can it be given to middle-aged people before they become sick, the same way we take certain drugs to keep our, our health in check? Um, at what age should we do this? Does the disease have a have to appear before this? We we need to inject something. If the mainstream doctors refuse to help, uh, will we end up going overseas for this? There's so many questions and so many ethical dilemmas that come into play with this. So that's kind of what David Sinclair uh, talks about. So the last chapter in this. Part two is the age of innovation. So we live in some pretty incredible times right now. And there are 3.234 billion base pairs or letters in the human genome. And we can use these base pairs in our DNA and use it for our advantage. And our DNA can essentially, at this point in time, can tell us what foods to eat, what microbes to uh, to cultivate in our gut, what therapies will work best for us, how our, how our circadian rhythm works, all these all these questions that we have can be answered by looking at our DNA. It's pretty incredible. And the same is also true for medical interventions. Our genes can tell us which interventions are better for us and which could be more harmful to us. And one of the things that we need to think about Are these assumptions in medicine so when we're treating patients we there's a lot of assumptions that come into play for example one of these assumptions davis and claire talks about is that males and females are essentially the same that's an assumption that is made with doctors a lot and another assumption is that all our metabolisms are like all the drugs that we're giving they work and are metabolized by like the same but we realize this is not true, and we need to tailor treatment specific to these patients' DNA. And I believe in our lifetime, we're going to be uh, so up in the research that we're going to be able to know and treat us, treat all of us depending on our, like, our own, our own DNA. And one thing that's also fascinating about the time we live is that we're, we are able to track almost 20, like 24-7, we're able to track how things are working in our body. For example, let's take a diabetic patient. A lot of times, diabet- diabetic patients and also people like Peter Atia and Rhonda Patrick, they get continuous glucose monitors. So literally 24-7, you can monitor how certain foods affect your body. And this is actually something really important to know. Like, for example... Let's say you're you have a, you, let's say you have a handful of grapes, and all of a sudden you see your blood sugar rise. Well, we know to avoid this food obviously. So, Rhonda Patrick, who is a longevity scientist, turned health and fitness expert, has been using this CGM sensing device to see what foods give her body a major sugar spike, and she found that grapes actually are the ones that is most surprising for her. These these are the ones that is spiking her blood sugar. But again, we're all different. Like, if you ate a bunch of grapes, this might not happen to you. So it's important to kind of find out what foods are affecting your blood glucose the most. And as David Sinclair writes this, he states he's wearing a regular ring-sized, regular-sized ring that is monitoring his heart rate, body temperature, and movements. So it tells him if he slept well that morning, it tells him how much he dreamed it tells him how alert he will be during the day I mean this is like Bruce Wayne and, and James Bond kind of technology going on i'm I'm sure he was talking about the aura ring where it can tell you all this um all this information and it's good to know so we are essentially walking hawthorne a walking hawthorne effect and One of the most critical daily decisions that affect how long we live is centered around the food we eat. So if your blood sugar is high at breakfast, you'll know to avoid sugar in your morning coffee. If your body is low on iron at lunch, you'll know it. And you can order a spinach salad, for example, to compensate. So he's giving a lot of examples showing that we can use tracking devices and technologies to make us live a healthier and longer life. By tracking how certain things affect our body because we are all different that's a fact and biometrics and analytics already already tell us when and how much to exercise but increasingly they will tell us to monitor the effects of our exercise or our lack thereof and then they'll also tell us our stress level as well so I mean we should be very excited to see what's in store for us in the future I mean he states in this passage that in the future if you're experiencing a heart attack, or even if it's perceivable only as a slight p- pain in your arm or a mini stroke, which often goes undiagnosed, you'll be alerted, and so will those around around you who need to know. So, essentially, we're going to be saving so many lives with this technology to come. So, uh, that's essentially the age of innovation. He's again just explaining how we're moving and we're moving fast when it comes to technology in our health and we all need to be very excited for the future. And that is essentially the age of innovation. And I'm not gonna do part three because part three has frankly zero science in it. So I'm not gonna discuss part three. Part three is all about where we're going in the future. And he basically explains how living, uh, if you have a bunch of people living longer, it's not gonna be a problem for the world or the economy. So that's that's the point he's making. Um, we shouldn't be scared of more people on this planet. And he talks about things like that. It's very non, non-scientific in in part three, so I'm not going to cover it. Um, but I, I do want to jump to conclu- the conclusion paragraph. So we want to know what David Sinclair is doing to keep himself young. And he often gets questions on supplements to take or what foods to eat. So he goes through a list of what he does. So I'm going to run through this list very quickly. And this is exactly what David Sinclair is doing. And maybe we can take some things that he's doing because he's he's the expert here. So we want to take some things that he's doing and kind of implement it into our lives. Again, he's kind of extreme with the stuff he does. But uh, let's see what he does. So he takes 1,000 milligrams of NMN every morning along with 1 gram of resveratrol. And he makes this resveratrol with his homemade yogurt. And he also takes 1 gram of metformin. So, 1 gram of NMN, 1 gram of metformin, and 1 gram of resveratrol. Okay, next. He takes a daily dose of vitamin D, vitamin K, and 83 milligrams of aspirin. He strives to keep his sugar, bread, and pasta intake as low as possible. And he says he, he gave up desserts at age 40. Though I do steal tastes, he states. Next, I try to skip one meal a day or at least make it really small. My busy schedule almost always means that I miss lunch most days of the week. Every few months, a phlebotomist comes to my home to draw my blood, which I've analyzed for dozens of biomarkers. When my levels of various markers are not optimal, I moderate them with food or exercise. I try to take a lot of steps each day and walk upstairs and I go to the gym most weekends with my son, Ben. We lift weights, jog a bit, and hang out in the sauna before dunking in an ice-cold pool. I eat a lot of plants and try to avoid eating other and other mammals, even though they do taste good. If I work out, I will eat meat. I don't smoke. I try to avoid microwave plastics, excessive UV exposure, x-rays, and CT scans. I try to stay on the cool side during the day and when I sleep at night. And finally, I aim to keep my body weight or BMI in the optimal range for health span, which for me is 23 to 25. So that is the list of things that David Sinclair does to help keep him healthy. And we can implement some of these as well. And it's all all the stuff I mentioned in the previous podcast on ways to improve not only your lifespan, but your health span as well. So that is the conclusion of Lifespan: Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to by Dr. Davis and Claire. I loved the first two parts of this book. The third part kind of got boring, um, but it I recommend reading it. I mean, this is like gold golden information if we want to live longer and live healthier. So, I recommend reading Lifespan by Dr. Davis and Claire. And I hope you learned something in this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you have a, a comment or a book suggestion, I'll leave my Instagram in the episode description, and I appreciate it if you left a review, and thanks for tuning in.